0: Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about great books. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker.
1: I'm Dr. Junius Johnson.
0: And uh, we are recording this the week after Thanksgiving. Junius, how was your Thanksgiving?
1: Good. We had a good family time.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Hopefully you didn't eat too much. I'll never tell. (laughs) (laughs) We, uh... We're not big turkey people, so we had we pick crabs like Marylanders. Wow, yeah, non traditional,
1: you know. That's, that was really good. I'm, well, I I, also- I would actually
0: make the argument it's more traditional that uh, that it's closer to what the first Thanksgiving would have been, you know.
1: Um, oh, that true. Yeah.
0: So, anyways that's that's my uh, that's my Thanksgiving hot take. <laughs> so we are discussing a. Work by Geoffrey Chaucer, but not the one that you might expect.
1: That's right. Yes. This is, this is Chaucer's Troilus and Crusader. Um, right at the 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 first question is how do you say it? Um, because, you know, like Troilus is pretty straightforward, uh, but the, the girl's name, what's going on? In the original English, her name would have been pronounced Criseida, and That's the way it works in the meter, that's the way it's rhymed. Um, in the English translation that we're using here, Neville Coghill's classic translation um and he rhymes it with died and so beside um he even has a note about that in the beginning but so I guess um i am making myself say Chriside, um and so I'm I keep saying casna, but when I if I'm reading the name appears from the English from the modern English, I will have to read it as it as it pronounces it. The work was written by Chaucer in the 1380s, um. We don't know exactly when, but it was finished uh, by the mid to late 1380s, 1887 at the absolute latest. Chaucer 100, um, and so this is pre Canterbury Tales, and this is there a lot of that have been Chaucer in his development up to this point. The poem ends with a direct quote from the Divine Comedy, from Paradiso, um, and it's it's very much in dialogue with a He'd done up to this point, and so it's kind of um, a crowning piece on all of his literary accomplishments. He starts the Canterbury Tales later, um, even more ambitious project he wants to undertake that he doesn't get, um, but very partway through. So this is um, this text is really in a real sense the masterwork because he was able to he was able to lay everything where he wanted to be and together the way that he wanted to, whereas the Canterbury Tales very much have a text in process, um, which is still one of the greatest poems in English, even in process. That's just the kind of guy you're dealing with, the Chaucer. Yeah, I, I read this poem first in college. Um, I did my senior thesis on it. I've been going to write about the... Um, I will take a story that was treated by different writers and talk about how they treated differently. I picked the Troilus story, and I was going to do... Um, version and then Shakespeare's got a version of this and Dryden has a version of it and so I read the Chaucer I was just like oh this is great and then I read the Shakespeare I was like meh and then I read the Dryden and I was like no. so I decided I was just going to write about Chaucer and not about the other thing um so I've loved this text for a very long time but uh Wesley this is your first time reading it and um it did it did not live up to the advertised hype that I gave it is that correct
0: Yes, this is my first time reading it. It's one of those works that I have certainly seen mentioned and alluded to and talked about. Uh, But yeah, first time actually reading it. Uh, Yes, I did find it a bit disappointing, I suppose. Perhaps I went into it uh, with the wrong frame of mind, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Or maybe it was a, a lack of the understanding fully of the context of the work. Um, but I did not find either of the main characters to be particularly uh, lovable um, or enjoyable. Um, and so that kind of hampered my experience. And um, my original thought was that the ending felt a little bit abrupt or trite. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can maybe maybe talk about that a little bit more. Perhaps before we do that, we could just briefly talk about the plot, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's happening here is this: this it's the Trojan War. Um, as you might guess from Troy, his name, he is of the royal house of Troy, he's one of, the of Priam. That's down the list somewhere. His Priam's a lot of sons, and so there's a lot of space for you to get lost if, if you're not number one or two. Um, and um, Cressida is, um, I guess, we'll call her a noble. Her father's a priest. Um, in fact, he's the high priest. And so she's not from the standard, from the secular nobility, but does partake of that same uh, sense of place in society that comes from being um, a part of the priestly caste. Um, and so, her has been um, her father has been captured by the Greeks early on in the story, and so she finds him alone in Troy without a protector.
0: Was he captured, or was he a traitor?
1: Oh, that's right. No, you're right. He, he betrayed the, the... and So that made her position especially because her father was not there. So this sense of, your father's a traitor, which is not a young woman. Um, so she finds herself in society um, and you see even some of the things in book one where, for example, when Troll is first seen at the temple, she's got this defiant character to her because everyone's looking at her like, you don't belong here, you betrayed the city. Uh, she doesn't have an uncle in town um, around and he's a flirtless, and they, and he's going to be uh, one of the more important characters and three characters in the story in a sense to get the the two, and then pander it from whom we get the English verb to pander, which is um, essentially to play matchmaker.
0: He's the uh, original creepy uncle.
1: That's right, that's right, and and he did he better than anyone has really done it since. I mean, he really had in creepiness, uh, you know that's pander is the creepy uncle who is the, the even the english word to pander negative connotation it's not just to be a go-betweener a matchmaker it's it moves in the direction of pimp and i think you know from the story you can see how even though he's related to crusader and ought to be concerned for her virtue and standing in society and whatnot he's actually completely given over to helping Troy to satisfy desires um, and so that's a an aspect of the story that is much commented upon well so that the, the relationship in in book one Phyllis falls in love with her and trying to figure out what to do and pandas draws it out of him in book two pandas is doing the work of trying to get chrysaida to fall in love with Well, and then in book when they come together and you have this consummation and the glorious love and it's a great relationship and everything going really really well Four, that's when things start to go bad because in book and we father should... negotiates for her over to the Greek side and depart in this way, and that's the beginning of the final tragedy that will come around in book five.
0: And we should say that, um, Troilus falls in love with her, but he's never, I, I, and until book. Two, I believe, when they actually make contact, he's never actually talked to her. That's right. No, it's he's a love to at her. first sight.
1: Yeah, she's she, she's across the room, and he's. It's very it's proto Romeo and Juliet, um, in the sense not that someone else and leaves her for Cosetta, rather that he would always make fun of all the other guys falling in love with ladies, and he says, "Oh, love is silly and stupid and whatnot." And then he sees her, and it's like, "Uh, my love is great, and I want it." So. You know, it's, it's very, one of the things this text is really important in the tradition and why I like teaching it is because um, our modern notion of romance comes out of the tradition that this text is with and is exemplifying. Um, that's, that's kind of where I wanted to to, to take listeners, to kind of give you a window into and going on. There's been this, like, revolution in love. Um, that's happened in the couple centuries before Chaucer writes this, and it was probably a literary joke, but then people began to take it very seriously. And then we start getting sermons and long didactic works trying to convince people that this is a really, really bad idea, that it's it's a bad form of love, and it doesn't work. So then uh, this text is entering into conversation with that tradition so the, the ground zero for that tradition was a text by a man called andrew the chaplain andreas Capellanus, art of courtly love in the art of courtly love it's kind of a manual for how to seduce women and in it he lays down a series of laws or rules that are what how, how you would go about doing this and so these, these laws are hilarious when you think about this as this kind of in chic literary joke and horrifying if you would so here's the first law. Marriage is no real excuse for loving. And what's going on? Talking to a, a, a society where, it, into the, a class where marriages are arranged and they're political. And he wants to say, just because you're married doesn't mean you can't fall and have a relationship with them where the assumption is, of course, it's not going to be your spouse. It's going to be some other person because your spouse is just a contract. The second law is he who is not jealous, not love. Have to be jealous if you're in love. Three, can be bound by a double love. And that's that's related to a law that gets said a lot in the Middle Ages and it's heartbroken. They'd always say to them, you know, like in English we'll say there are other fish in the sea. And the Middle Ages they would say, well, new love drives out. So if your heart's broken, the best thing you can do is go fall in love with somebody else and you'll fall it It is well known that love is always increasing or decreasing. Right, you're either going forward or you're falling back. That which a lover takes against the will of his beloved has no relish. So, you know, just keep it. Individual. Boys do not love until they arrive at the age of maturity. And the age of maturity is about your physicality. This is explicitly can be sexually consummated with your spouse. And so now it's in- C. S. Lewis makes this point very clearly in the early 20th century that. It's an adulterous love. Like, that's what we're talking about here. When one lover dies, a widowhood of fire, that seems reasonable, to be deprived of love for the best of reasons. No one can love unless he is impelled by the persuasion of love, whatever that means. There's a stranger in the home of avarice. Greed and love can't go together because love is fed by love and lavish displays and, and this sort of a thing. Is any of that sounding familiar? I mean, is this starting to ring some bells about maybe some movies that we could point to of how love is to be done, right? Um, yes,
0: exactly, exactly.
1: It is not proper to love any woman whom one should be ashamed to marry. Like, you're not going to seek to marry right out. But by the same token, if she's got a person you could marry, so this is about social status.
0: Hmm.
1: A true lover does not desire... To grace and love anyone except his beloveds. So you've got to be true. It's a faithful relationship, except that it's an adulterous relationship. Right? Now this is a really, this is going to be really operative, choreless text. When made public, love rarely endures. Mm. You've got to keep it secret. Think about the way this is normally happening. Imagine a medieval castle and you've got, let's call him a baron. And he's got his baroness, whom he has negotiated for, and she's probably thirty years younger than he is, of course, of childbearing age because that's they having a baroness. Um, and uh, he, you know, he wants her for the children. She can she die for him or whatever. Um, but he's also responsibility to he well, he's to protect the, the land. The king is entrusted to him, and so he's got to keep knights around. Um, knights are really problematic if you're not in the middle of a war because what are they going to do? You got to feed them, you got to house them but what are they going to do all day? This is what tournaments were for. It was meant to give the knights some place to put all that aggression um, so that they would be able to do something about it. So you're going handsome knights all day except for um, look handsome and practice their sword and whatnot, and the Baroness is lonely and neglected, a much older, unattractive husband. And so wouldn't you know it? Uh, they notice one of the a relationship springs into existence. Well, in that kind of a scenario, you can see how it would be very difficult for the love to survive being made public, because there are some pretty severe consequences that are going to be brought to bear in that scenario. But this is going to be transposed into a principle. This is one of the reasons why, to this day, there's this kind of relish about the idea of an affair, because there's this. Our whole notion of love is built upon these relationships and of love that we're talking about, this is the first time in history the rules of that dance have been written down, mm-hmm. dancing in the music 800 years later. Um, it is the interesting last couple of
0: years- how oh, – sorry, I was just going to say this. the two things that stood out to me as you were talking so far. The first is that the, the one rule about being impelled by love mm-hmm. is interesting because it makes the person passive yes because again is is how we largely talk about it well i fell in love or you can't choose who you love these are things that are often bandied about but um anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows love is often a choice uh more than it is a feeling and and it, it has to be kind of active right um yeah and and so that kind of passivity is interesting it does work itself into the story in a few different places um which we can maybe talk about later um but anyways, I, I, I just find that to be a very interesting. And then the secretive element makes some sense as well. There's a sort of titillating aspect to it being secretive. Um, I mean, even in the case mm-hmm. of, of Troilus, he's not married. She's not married. So there's no mm-hmm. reason theoretically why they couldn't. In fact, I was wondering about that because it talks about Hector and Hector's married. And it's like, well, how did Hector get yeah. married if these are the rules everybody's operating in? Like there are people who are obviously getting married, so why can't they just be normal and get married? But it wouldn't right. be as titillating. Right. And and and
1: Troilus is a prince. And Croseida is not only not a noble woman, she's also under a cloud with her father. So Priam's not giving his son to Kuseida, or or rather getting Cosaida for his son in that scenario. Um That's actually a violation of one of the rules, right? She's someone in her current situation that he would be ashamed to see. And that's – but the rule is often interpreted that it's not to do with the external social things. It's to do with the inner quality. The person is of a virtuous character at heart where virtue can't mean what we normally think virtue means because it clearly doesn't rule out an adulterous relationship. But it's that chivalry thing. It's what would you think of when you think of a a knight who is – Worth loving, who was worthy, those are the actors' things that come into play. One of the texts um, in this tradition, Marie de France, has a series of short stories that are all um, about this kind of thing, and hers are hilarious. And one of the things, um, you know, this, this woman fell in love who lived in a neighboring castle because he was, um, he had a great reputation, and he lived nearby. It's <laughs> so, you know, it's, that's a, clearly a high standard there for what's going on. On the point about um, the passivity, you know, in 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 Canto Four of Inferno, when we meet the the lust-driven folks, uh, Paolo and Francesca, Dante Dante was a was a poet of this tradition before he got serious about his faith again. And that's what the Vita Nuova is all about. It's all done in this vein, um, and so he's writing. Like Chaucer from within that tradition when he writes that that canto about them. And if you go through canto four and listen to uh, Francesca's speech about their history and what happened with them, it's all in the passive. This stuff happened to us. This stuff happened to us. And it ended up with her concluding line is love led us to one death. Right, and if you look at what's happening to them, the Conor Paso of how are they being punished appropriately to the crime? They're being blown about by a wind. They can't go where they want to go. They're driven by this wind. They wanted to pretend that they didn't have any agency and that they were just helpless victims. And so, in hell, come the helpless victims. They tried to make themselves into being. Um, so I think yeah, that's a really good point for you to zero in on there.
0: Well, and it and it ties to the sort of in the the moral of the story, uh, which is Chaucer kind of uh, exhorting his readers to not give into this kind of love because he says that this is worldly vanity, that this is a, a carnival. It's nothing but a carnival that passes away. Um, mm-hmm. And so he encourages his readers to set their hearts on God, specifically on Jesus. Um, and, uh, and, and the reason for that is that that's, God doesn't change. There's not that mutability. There's not that passing away Uh, there, which, uh, well, maybe I'll talk myself into really liking this book. I don't know. It's a very Augustinian point, point. though.
1: It is. And Chaucer um, did a translation of the Constellation into English. And that's in the background here, too. Obviously, Fortune's Wheel is going to come about as a major yes. – it's, it's going to be referenced within the text itself. But even these larger the, – the larger themes of the Constellation about if your heart's in the right place, which right. is the eternal place, then you can't be bothered by the vicissitudes of this world. And Chaucer spent a lot of time with that text.
0: Even um, – well, there are moments where Troilus is uh, – stuck and he, he starts crying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he does this in mm-hmm. the beginning before he makes the connection with her and um, and then he does it again once the negotiations have happened and it becomes clear she's going to be sent away from the city. Um, he's crying to the point that Pandarus actually kind of plays a role like Lady Philosophy in a way. I mean, he's not quite there, but he says, why won't you help set matters right yourself? And by acting like a man, prevent all this grief, get up at once and stop this weeping and show you're a man. <laughs> but it's exactly like what Lady Philosophy does to, to Boethius. It's like, hey, yeah. you've got to stop this and, you know, get control
1: of yourself. Right. Right. Um, Chaucer is is so well read and he's so how he does things and it's it's just delightful to see him weaving all these things together um last couple of of laws here are helpful um the easy attainment of love makes it of little value difficulty of attainment makes it pride right so if he just goes over and says hey you know you guys you want to hang out and hang out then that's not a great story and, and nobody wants to and it's it can't how great a love can that be right challenges to overcome it's like your romantic comedy they get they get together at the beginning of the movie you've got to run around for an hour and a half not getting it right before they can finally come together at the end of the movie right it's Um, why no
0: romantic comedy it's why no romantic comedy is they just met on tinder or something you know there's always there's got to be something else that happens where there's the obstacle
1: exactly every romantic comedy is books one and two of the choice they, they cut us off before um uh, every lover is pale in the presence of his beloved. When a lover suddenly catches sight of his beloved, his heart palpitates. What are those two things about? That's relevant to the, the, the fainting. If you read much medieval literature, you're fainting left and right. You know, it's like in the, in the Victorian period, women are fainting because they have constraint. Their hearts are too weak to move the blood. And so they just faint at the slightest provocation. In ages, men faint. And they faint because their feelings are so that it overcomes them, and so fainting is manly in the Middle Ages. That's why you see all of your great characters. The time, it's interesting for for Pandarus to be saying, you know, stop crying and act like a man, because in a sense, it's more manly what Troilus is doing um, to be crying, mm-hmm. to be overcome by the emotions, right? But uh, Pandarus is pushing him towards a different sense of man. It's also showing that he himself doesn't have a good idea of what it's like. To be a great person, he's not a great person. And when it comes down to it, he's reduced to silence. His last line is, I don't "Have anything else to say?" <laughs> I've played my part. I don't. I don't know what to do now. Um. And then, yeah. So, so that's kind of the way that these are kind of the rules that are in the background of what's going on. What Chaucer is depicting here is a love uh, that's literally by the book. Mm. The, the book is going down and he's all of these boxes of this is the way relationship is supposed to go if you're this way. And mm. one of the other really, really big themes in this book, which is, of course, also a book theme, is the question of necessity. There's a great deal, especially – um in the latter book this this sort of fortune has decreed that must go out of troy and therefore fortune whether indirectly or not has to come to an end um and there's been a lot of discussion uh, Chaucer talks about this in Canterbury he talks about it in the canterbury tales he's also talked in a couple of other works this question of are we free or not does the the heavens influence us which is denied at his point in time does that override human freedom such that um if you just could read the horoscope well you would be able to say everything that was going to happen tutored by boethius Chaucer is going to come down on the side of free will he's always very clearly on the side of free will so what's going on with all the stuff here i think a big part of what is the necessity is not the necessity of it has been willed by the pagan gods the moralists must come to an end because we saying blah, blah, blah. No, Joes is if you're going to love by the book, by this book, then there's one possible outcome for your for your life. Another book you can love by and that creates abilities for you. So it's interesting to see where, where this winds up at the end of the poem. In in book five, and the standards are all numbered, which is great because you can get where you want to be very quickly. Book five stands at 262. Um he finished talking about how Troilus has spoiler, Troilus dies, how Troilus has died and is and is ascending to the heavens, to the slot, the, the space that Mer, the god Mercury has appointed for him. And he looks down on all this world and he laughs at it. And he sees people weeping for his death. He's killed by Achilles. He sees people weeping for his death, and he laughs at them, at their grief, because he now has the perspective to recognize that none of that mattered. None of it ever mattered, right? And this is another major medieval theme, is if you could only see from the um, viewpoint of eternity, you would think totally differently of everything. So in 262, Chaucer, the narrator, is concluding, lo, Such an end had troublous for love. Such an end, his his prowess. Lo, in his royal state above, such in his lust, such in his nobleness. So we see all of the things that make him a good man under the code of chivalry listed right there. He loves well. He's good at battle. He's got a you know, he's he's royal, um, filled with lust. And once again, he's got a high noble cast. What does all that lead him? It leads him to a place where he dies and looks down and realizes it's not worth anything. And and such an end, this false world's... All of the... The end that Troy experiences is the same end that everyone makes an idol of this world going to experience. And from there, he turns to his... Cl- Oh, all you fresh young people, he or she, in whom love grows and ripens year by year, come home. In patria, the medieval phrase for to be in heaven, the homeland here. This is in via, we pilgrims, pilgrims, Canterbury. Rather, come home to the father, come home from worldly vanity. So you, I, I say all of that, I say all of that to kind of lay out the outline of what I think Chaucer's trying to do in this text, which is he's seen end of sermons and didactic pieces about this way of loving and how bad it is. Um, and uh, one of the great novels, one of the great 12th century, Anonymous Quest of the Holy Grail, um, it affects a lengthy didactic tale about how the type of chivalry that we associate with is false knighthood because true knighthood and discipleship, and he's seeing all like it's not working. Like people aren't moved; they aren't convinced by that. So, what I do is I'm gonna take them. I'm gonna do a deep dive, and I'm not going to show my hand. I'm not gonna do a didactic piece. I'm gonna do a mimetic piece. Just let them experience all the tea and excitement of the chase. All the j- of attainment and all the the inevitable loss and at the end then I'll be able to say to them so (laughs) how'd that right is this really the path you want to go in your life
0: this uh reminds me of um, of a funny kind of funny story that when we first got married my wife and I got married in 2013 and we went to go to the movies Mm -hmm. um you know We were adults, you know, we're married, we have all this time and no kids yet. And so we um, Friday night, we go to a movie and uh, the Wolf of Wall Street had just come out and I we didn't really look it up ahead of time. We didn't know what what it was. And so we went to go see it. And of course, it's a movie full of gratuitous uh, depravity. Mm. And, you know, we have had an ongoing conversation ever since then. We've been married almost 10 over 10 years now uh, about. (laughs) <laughs> whether or not um, that was necessary or unnecessary to include all of that. But there's a sense in which my position has always been that um, you can't really tell that story without showing the ugliness of the depravity because it's a story about greed, you know, and, and what mm. it does to a person. Mm. Um, and so there is a sense in which I think that fiction is a really powerful tool for us to do that, to hold up a mirror, to, things and, and 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 it enfleshes them more i mean you know i could give you a sermon about uh 10 reasons why you shouldn't uh fall in love in the way in this sort of vacuous way but um to actually enflesh it in a story mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it seems like a more persuasive tool i mean you need both but uh but mm-hmm. but there is a sense in which this is a really useful function for literature
1: yeah that's right and then the the, the what you have to do if you're the one trying to be This is, is you've got to take the next step and not think, oh, for me, I'm special. I can beat the odds. (laughs) This story happened. Everyone's been trying to beat the odds ever since I wrote this book, right? The reason we call it courting is because of courtly love. And so I always find it hilarious you know, sometimes very conservative families will say, "Oh, we don't want our children to date; we want them to court." And I'm, that's way worse. <laughs> but our, our dating culture comes out of these works. Um, it comes out, of It comes out of all of all of this chivalrous thing. People, Chivalry is dead. My response is, "What did it were? Because chivalry is what a lot, of people call, and it's killing you because it's no way to approach life.
0: You do get the idea, (laughs) at least I did, especially the the book, is it book three where they have their rendezvous um, Mm -hmm. that is organized by Pandarus, where there's almost a feeling of conquest wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was deeply uncomfortable (laughs) reading it. Um, You know, (laughs) it made me feel icky. Like there's this kind of manipulation going on and all that and uh i don't know it it was very interesting and it also is very interesting on troilus's from Troilus' perspective that uh he his reason once the negotiations happens and she sent out from the city he says he doesn't want to interfere and he doesn't want to manipulate and he doesn't want his strategies to be interpreted by her in the wrong way right He's okay with Pandaris using all sorts of manipulation and strategy in order to get her into bed, but yes, it's it, it's just a very interesting contrast. Like, well, you're okay with it as long as you're passive and you're you know directly gaining from it in this kind of very physical way, but uh, but you're not willing to uh, you know just act in order to prevent something bad from happening.
1: Yeah, there's a uh, on that point about the conquest in book three, stand seventy three. They're they're alone together, and Troilus is put to the final consummation. It says, and then this Troilus began to strain her in his arms and whisper, "Sweetest, say, are you not caught, we twain? Now yield yourself, no other way." Right? He's, he's mm. it's violent, um, and it's only because if it, you know, if you want to say it that way, because she answered him as they lay. Had I not yielded long ago, my dear, my sweetest heart, I should not now be here, right? So this is like, okay, like, don't resist, don't resist. And she's the only one who's saying clearly, and she's like, dude, if I would, if I didn't want this a long time ago, if it had to happen for us to wind up in this spot, wouldn't have been an idiot, right? You're going to see her side of the day. Once once Pandora gets in her and she begins to think about it, then she's got to play the game, she's got to play hard to. Right? That's where that comes from as well, stuff. Um, so that it'll for this will be well and truly hooked, worth it for him, but also so that she's getting up being easy, right? But at the, at the when all is about to come together, she's able to say to him, "You, you, you have no idea. Like you haven't seen this right. Time. I've been working from the other side, get here as much as you've been working from your side."
0: Yeah. Yeah. I did. I did find that interesting that, um, that from her perspective, the reason to keep it secret is if it gets out, her reputation is ruined. Mm-hmm. Which again is still the case today, right? That like in these kind of situations, the women, the woman involved in the affair is usually treated in a way that is disproportional to the way that the man. I mean, it wouldn't have derailed Troilus's life any, really, right? because there, right. there's that imbalance.
1: That's right. <clears throat> um, yeah, he, he, nothing at stake. Uh, she's got everything at stake, and and him to talk to her about all this high and lofty sounding stuff. Well, I mean. Okay, but if, if people find out that we did this, you're going to get a pat on the back and damaged goods, you know?
0: Yep, yep.
1: Her situation is hard. She has a reputation um, that goes beyond this book um, that when she was sent out to the Greeks, she freely gave her love to Diomedes. And so she's, she's referred to as faithless, you know? Um, because she ought to have been true to Troilus and kept him in her heart and whatever. If he doesn't, she finds a new love, which is by the book, blaming her for doing what the book says she should do. There's no getting him back. Well, here's somebody here, and he's got all the same qualities that Troilus has. Um, but at the end of the day, um, she winds up um, a beggar roaming through an ancient world with no home and Take care of her and um just a wreck of a woman and you'll leave it that that's referenced in Shakespeare twelfth night uh festive at one point he says the line Festida was a beggar and it's, it's this whole thing she, from where she start, wound up being a beggar so be careful about making the ways you go about things
0: i thought one other thing we could talk about in this that that i found interesting is just the um, the difference between the two, in terms of coming to love,
1: mm-hmm.
0: with Troilus, it's love at first sight. He sees her, doesn't even know her, right? But with her, it's it's a much more gradual build up to where she she gets to that point. And even then, you do get a sort of sense of timidity in her, which I mean it makes sense given her situation. But I just found it very interesting that um, the, the the contrast there. And I don't know really what to make of it. Uh, I mean, certainly some of it, I guess, could be that Troilus is a prince, and so he's used to seeing something he likes and you know moving on it, I guess. And whereas she's has to be careful the way she plays her cards. But I, I did I did find it interesting that those two are so contrasted, and that she's the one who ends up being um, who ends up kind of leaving him. Uh, because if you had me at the beginning uh put a bet on who I thought would leave the other, it would be Troilus because he's the one who fell into love so quickly that it seems like it'd be easier to fall out. But he seems fairly constant throughout the book.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that that's his tragedy. He does everything he's told to do. Everything he's learned he's supposed to and it, it blows up in his face, right? He And and I think that's the that's the central of the text. Whereas she Had no thought for had to be you know seriously argued into this and really sort of led all these reservations have to go come away. She food and then she flees very quickly onto the next. the The faithlessness of the woman, the faithlessness of the woman, not necessarily a common trope in these things. You do get a lot of love from the in these stories. It does get both ways, but. Thinking the women are going to be more more faithful than the men, um, although these stories really they thrive on the lovers getting separated by impossible to overcome forces and somehow finding their way to each other again, which is once again something our society knows nothing about. Um, and um, so, but early on, you know that that book talking about the Art of courtly love, it's written to men, and is written to tell men how they can win the affections of women. And it's subdivided according to your social rank and her social rank. So if you're a member of the higher nobility and she's a member of the lower nobility, this if you're lower, this is how you act to kind of navigate all those separate things. So right from the beginning, the women are set up as the thing that are being pursued because you've got this large tradition of the powerful woman in the household who is not free to pursue on her own because, um, and for whom everything is at stake, right? Because if she is found to have had an affair with anyone, it calls into question the legitimacy of the heirs. And so it's actually treachery. A capital offense for her on that side alone. Um, one of the places where all these stories gathered and for whom was for the court of Eleanor of Ockham, who was one of the most women of the Middle Ages. Um, and so all of these troubadours would come through and sing these tales and whatnot. And so there was a desire to elevate the women into positions of power and give the women power in the relationships because that's what was going to please Eleanor to hear stories like that. And then those stories become archetypal for the centuries that follow. And you find this is this is the same thing that we do today. That's very, very dangerous uh, for us we listen to certain types of music, we watch certain types of movies, and then we either subtly or not so very subtly, unconsciously or not so very, try to shape our lives and our relationships line up with the with the uh, popular culture version. And so we have a love like that. And, and sometimes you see people who are get into um, self-sabotaging relationships because what they love is not so much being in love, but having been longed in love. And so they, they they love being in the position of, like, the breakups. I don't say they don't feel pain. They do, but it's a pain also love to be under. Um, we've got to be careful to bend our lives to match the stories that we're um, living in, that we're in, in our imaginations in. This is what you saw happening with this whole tradition.
0: Yeah, even as you're talking, I'm thinking about some, you know, pop culture stories like you know like a twilight or something you know this kind of mm-hmm. uh it's very similar principles um and you even see this in kind of a toxic way in some of the sort of alpha male you know dating type discussions like there's this similar uh desire to dominate and everything it's and, and, and so yeah nothing new under the sun i guess here
1: yeah well and, and it's you know it's it's deeper than, it's true. nothing new to the sun, but also it's deeper than that because um, this tradition, a rut in the road for how genders would go around romance, and we're still in that same rut. Like, we are still actively participating in this tradition, and that's the number one thing I, I read this type of stuff, um, is we're not reading about how love was done in ancient Greece, which is very different to how we do it today. The reason you're acting the way you've been acting in your relationship to other people is book and books like it. Yeah, you're still yeah. their script. So, at what point are we going to um, take a hard look at the script and say, you know, it's a bad, script. always been a bad script. Our best, guess, you know, from from the scholars. Stuff, our best sense no one was supposed to actually do this it was supposed to be a big joke everyone would see how ridiculous and hilarious it was at some point mm. some people thought you know that's not really funny that's actually a really good idea and there's a straight line from those first days, probably who thought that all the way to the local bar where guys and girls are still going to this dance to repeat this, this 800 years on
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. I think, um, it, I guess one thing uh, about the ending, because like I said, it, it, at times it feels a little abrupt, mm-hmm. is that there is not a great counter example. I mean, he says, you know, basically love God instead of instead of kind of falling in love. Um, great. But then, uh, you know, we've had this whole example of what not to do, but then the question of, well, then what should I do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because obviously we still do have these feelings and we still do have relationships that have these, uh, aspects to them. And so it becomes an interesting question. And I think, I mean, this is obviously something that like, in as a pastor, I would work with a couple in premarital counseling and talk about, but, um, it's interesting because it does, it does require us to go deeper and his closing. Well, that's a great paragraph or two. It, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, there's so many questions then, well, what does that look like in the context of <laughs> yeah. a marriage? You know? Yeah. Um, Cause it's not going to look like this. It's gonna be very different, but right. um, you know, that, that, that can often be hard and uh, you know, premarital counseling, you tell people this, and I feel like I've had people come back years later and kind of complain you're like hey it's not all like the movies hey this you know at a certain point the feelings go away and you have to just make decisions i'm gonna love this person yeah and um and uh you know i'll have people who get married and then they come back like four or five years later and they start to talk about oh well yeah you know it's weird you know it's not like it used to be yeah of course it's
1: not like it used That's to right. be <laughs> <laughs> it's not meant to be like it used to be you get got a bad paradigm um, one of the most helpful things I ever learned about the Middle Ages um, was that they they had two approaching any problem, and that was with positive exemplar and with negative exempla. Mm-hmm. And they didn't feel they needed to balance them out, um, and they didn't feel like they needed to find which one you were seeing, because there was enough common understanding in the culture that they could you'd recognize, oh, that's a bad choice. In the same way that, uh, I mean, I didn't want, but I imagine that it's quite clear from what I know that this is a bad idea. You should not start down this pathway that this guy started down, right? Um, and so this is an example of a negative exemplum. And he doesn't have to give you the positive exemplum because in his culture, it's all over the place. And you know you're going to open your Bible. In our culture, it's not so clear where it is. Not everyone knows they can come to you. And, and get good preaching on this right um so that's that's a difference there but I, I find that really helpful because a lot of people approach the middle ages and they feel like um if a writer's devoting this much energy to writing he must be in favor of it i say no they, they go deep into the negative examples as well and they lay that out for you yeah
0: that's helpful So that so basically what you're saying is that we should w- whenever we watch a romantic comedy now we should understand it's a negative example we should even if the that's even right. if the writers and directors didn't intend for it to be it's actually a negative.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. So and, and, and you know what if the it's almost like you stop the movie at the low point right because every movie's got that middle dip where it seems like all is lost you should sort of stop it because if you act like this that's the most likely outcome.
0: <laughs> yes 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 that's true i one uh one film i do sort of like I, I don't know if you've seen this or not and i mean there's a lot in it that i don't like but it's pretty funny and um uh, but this is 40 mm, which is a like judd a apatow movie it's paul rudd and leslie mann are the two main characters and they uh mm. they have you know they're they married now for you know 15 years and they have teenage daughter and a middle school daughter and so in other words the romance has worn away you know mm. um he spends you know an hour on the toilet every day playing scrabble on his ipad you know and it's just like little <laughs> things that annoy you and it's like um and, and you know he has to put up with certain things that she does and i it's actually a kind of good movie in that regard that it, it it's it's the sort of what happens after the romantic comedy you know right um, So I I find that to be interesting though that again, that's not necessarily a recommendation because there's a lot of crudity and stuff in it, but it's uh, still, it's uh, interesting.
1: You know, on that point, and this is not my end note, just so we're clear. uh, A a movie that I think also addresses um, what happens after book two, um, but doesn't do so that is, um, it does in a way that's very realistic and helpful is um, a movie called family man with Nick and Taylor Leone. Um, They had a relationship that very, you know, fiery and whatnot. And then he decides um, to establish a relationship in favor of his career ambition. And he becomes very successful and he has all these empty relationships with beautiful women, you know, one night things like this. And he's got the fancy clothes and all this other kind of stuff. Suddenly he finds himself in an alternate reality where the choice, where he chose her rather than the career. And he gets to see the family they would have had and what their life would be like. And at first he hates it, but then he comes to realize that this is so richer and more meaningful than what he actually had in his own life. And the you know, the cool thing about it is he didn't just choose to stay there and have that be his life. Now he had a different choice and he's got to go back. But he's so in love with, with what he saw there that he then reaches to can we pick up from where we are now and is there a path from where we are now to something like what, what I saw we could have been. Right. Um, and th- that's really powerful because it shows you that, you know, it doesn't glorify the early falling in love moments of the relationship. It glorifies the actual relation, which is messy and which is it's coming in early in the morning, find time to get together and other kinds of things, right? Um, those are the kinds of antidotes that, frankly, Chaucer can't really give us single man. <laughs> Never got married. He's. <laughs> You know, he's he's he, he says in the beginning that he's he stays out of love because he's too ugly so he can't get involved with that whole sort of thing. Actually, I don't think it's true that he didn't get married. I think he actually did get married at some point, but but he's not you know, for him his life is around romantic love. His his life was around his books and he did have he didn't he had a son, he didn't get married. Um he wrote a treated treatise on the actual for his but, like, it's so weird because he always presents himself as a literary character, as someone who um, is shut out of love because he's not a and can't have that. Um, I get the feeling Chaucer's marriage was very different than the types of relationships he writes about in his books. And I feel like that's intentional, that he's writing out of a wisdom of, you know, guys, you're looking, you're trying to be Lancelot and Guinevere. And first of all, that's dumb because that didn't work out very well, right? But second of all, it's it's actually better to just be, you know, Joe and Martha, ill you know, marriage on the ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, should we perhaps move to end notes then?
1: What, what did you get for end note this time?
0: Okay. So um, because this is the story that I was not very familiar with, um, I just kind of went to Spotify and typed it in and I always kind of look at to see what comes up. And of course, lots of audiobook recordings, but there is an opera of this um, mm. written by William Walton. And so I listened to it quite a bit, actually. i not mm. a big opera guy, but I did enjoy it quite a bit. And it, it, it helped me um, as I was kind of reading it to listen to the music. And I think it helped yeah. set the tone a little bit, you know. So that's what I would recommend is the opera by William Walton.
1: I actually didn't know about that i would i like walton's music i'm gonna get into that uh, well um, mine is much more uh, uh i'm gonna recommend titanic um because titanic is kind of uh a modern for a certain generation of this same story essentially right um and so i'm going to recommend watching titanic through the lens of joyless and seeing it as a Ooh. name and seeing the the end of Titanic as the sort of inevitable tragedy, because those people can't be together in a happy way. The the pain that would be required for them to be together uh, is enormous. And so it it really mirrors this. um, It really mirrors this very well.
0: Interesting. That's I, I love that. Very good. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, reading along with us. I hope that you uh, enjoyed this book and maybe got some of its uh, morals better than I did, uh, at least the first go round. I think after this conversation, I enjoy the book much more than I did previously. So I appreciate that.
1: That is is always the goal of any conversation about books is to uh, help you appreciate and and make you excited to dive back in and read it and read it some more.
0: I actually I felt that way too about our conversation last month on the social contract. Like I enjoyed our conversation a lot more than I enjoyed reading the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Same.
0: <laughs> well, great. Well, uh, listeners, our next read is a listener's choice. And uh, as of this moment, we do not have a selection yet. So keep an eye out on our Substack page because we will announce whatever that book will be. Um, and so that should be, out, um, that should be out pretty shortly after this episode comes out. So we're looking forward to uh, whatever it is that you all choose for us to read and discuss next month. And then the month after that, so that will be our January book is the reader's choice. And then February, we will be discussing Julius Caesar's I'm sorry, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. uh, And we'll have a special guest for that. So we're very excited um, about the next couple months. And we appreciate you uh, coming along this journey with us. So in the meantime, keep reading.